Our topic tonight out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, the multi-metal statue. It uh, has deep significance, this chapter. It lays the foundation for all the rest of the prophetic books of the book of Daniel and of Revelation, which makes it very, very important. Again, laying that foundation, everything builds upon this. And so if as, as we go through these various chapters, or uh, everything continues to build upon that. And so if you see anything, anytime, anywhere, reading the Bible, and you think something, uh, you know, is building on another foundation, then you know it's wrong, right? It's got to build on this same foundation, just builds up from here. And so each chapter in the book of Daniel goes over another prophecy, builds off of this, kind of like uh, in school, uh, whether you're studying mathematics, and, you know, everything adds to addition and subtraction, right? You can't multiply unless you know how to add, right? And you can't do uh, algebra or anything else, calculus, unless you've got adding down pat. And if you don't understand adding, then, then the rest of it's not going to make sense. Everything adds upon that, right? Nothing can, can uh, two plus two is still two, even in algebra, even in calculus, right? Even in uh, trigonometry, it's still two plus two equals four, right? That's how it has to, has to add up. It has to match the original simplistic basic foundation, right? And so the same here, and we're going to see that over and over again uh, through these chapters, uh, again, of Daniel and of Revelation. So Daniel chapter 2 is a prophetic chapter. Now the other chapters that were stories, 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6, lion's dens and, and fiery furnaces, those also were actual historical stories, but were also prophetic, dual application. Where this also is a story, we're going to see a dream that takes place and Daniel interacting with Nebuchadnezzar, but it obviously has more of a prophetic aspect to it. And the same with chapter 7, but chapter 7 is going to come back and overlap on chapter 2, and the same with all the rest of the chapters. So let's get into it. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and uh, it has a big impact on him. And so when he awakens, he calls all his uh, wise men and astrologers and soothsayers to explain the dream to him and they say oh king live forever tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation right so he's not telling them the dream either he is testing them and doesn't want to tell them and wants them to both tell and then if they can tell it then there he trusts their interpretation or he doesn't remember it right have you ever had that you ever uh wake up and and not even remember that you dreamt something, and then somewhere along the day, something reminds you of it. Maybe you see a car or see someone that reminds you of the dream, and you dreamt about them in the dream, and then boom, all of a sudden it starts coming back to you. How many of you have ever had that kind of experience, something like that? Yeah, or, or you've um, woken up and remember parts of it, not everything of it, and then later on it, it starts coming back to your memory. So either he doesn't remember it, but he knows something significant happened in that dream that startled him, woke him up, uh, or he's testing them. And they say, well, just tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. All right, well, that's a good incentive, right? <laughs> you know, you're going to be cut up, and worse than that, your home's going to be made an ash heap, right? That's pretty, pretty heavy, heavy-duty punishment for not being able to uh, tell the dream and give the interpretation. So this dream is important to him. He says there, they say to him, there is no 
other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right? So they say no one can do this except the gods and they don't dwell with us and so we don't know. Now, all along, no doubt, they've been telling him all kinds of things. The, the crystal ball says this, the tea leaf says this, your palm says this, and interpreting all kinds of things. But now, all of a sudden, when he tells them, tell me the dream and the interpretation, they come up with a blank, right? It's, it's kind of like those uh, psycho-psychics out there today, you know, who, who can't tell you what uh, stocks are going to go up tomorrow, uh, you know, or what stocks are going to go down, or, or what's the numbers on the lottery going to be. Uh, but they can tell you everything else they want you to believe uh, for a charge. So these kind of guys, these kinds of charlatans have been around for a long time. It's amazing. They're still around today on the radio and all the kinds of things. But people are still falling for it just like Nebuchadnezzar. But here he calls them on it and he says, I'm going to test you. And if you really can't give me a straight answer on a simple thing, if you're that, you know, in tune with the future, then just tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. Do your little witchcraft stuff there and come up with it. If not, I'm going to cut you in pieces. And that would, uh, you know, be a good test for, uh, for one of these guys, call up one of these charlatans and say, okay, tell me what I dreamt last night and tell me what it means and see what they, uh, what they come up with. So he says, nope, I'm going to execute you. <laughs> That's it. I gave you your chance. And they say, give us some more time. Nope, execute him, basically is what he, what he says. And, uh, and he might have actually started the execution process and it comes along to Daniel, and Daniel hears about it, and uh, they come to him, and he, he goes to the king, and he asks for more time. The very thing that they were asking for, but the king gives him more time. Something about Daniel, again, maybe in Daniel chapter 1, that experience with him, seeing the wisdom that God blessed him with, wiser than everyone else and his, and his friends. And so the king grants him a little bit more time, and Daniel goes to faithful praying. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're praying, they're praying all night for God to reveal it to them. And in the morning, Daniel praises the Lord. Right? Whether God showed it to him in a vision in the night, that's what it says, vision in the night. So whether he had a, an awake vision or a dream, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. So Daniel, very quick to give praise to God, which is so key. We see that throughout Daniel's life, and that should be a standard for our life, to give honor and glory and praise to God in all things. Because he is the one who gives us the ability to do anything, to uh, dream, to interpret dreams, to understand things, to be able to breathe, to be able to sleep, to be able to wake up. Everything is because of God, right? So if you woke up today, then you can praise God. That is literally a miracle. Uh, everything is sustained by the Lord. And so he gives him praise, and that is a good thing, again, for us to be doing throughout our lives. So let's watch a little video that's going to outline the dream and a little bit of the interpretation for us, a little comic or cartoon type of movie uh, put together by Superbook. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and while you were sleeping, he showed you what will happen in the future. Your Majesty, 
what you saw standing in front of you was a huge and terrifying statue. This image, huge and dazzling, towered before you, fearful to behold. Its head was made of gold, its chest and arms were silver, and from its waist down to its knees, it was bronze. From there to its ankles, it was iron, and its feet were a mixture of iron and clay. As you watched, a stone was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. The stone struck the feet, completely shattering the iron and clay, and swept away like chaff before the wind until no trace remained. But the stone became a tremendous mountain that covered the entire earth. And the meaning of the dream? Why does it fill me with dread? Because you, O oh King of Kings, you are that head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, and then a third, and then a fourth, as strong as I am. During the time of those kings, the God who rules from heaven will set up an eternal kingdom that will never fall. He's told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom will fall. Now I know that your God is above all other gods and kings because he gave you the power to explain this mystery. So Daniel, faithful as always, tells the king exactly how it is and he gives honor and glory to God. There is a God in heaven. It's not me. It's not anyone else who can do this. But there is a God in heaven. And miraculously, the king humbles himself because, you know, again, it wasn't such a faithful uh, description for the king itself. He's going to be replaced. His kingdom's going to be replaced. He could have executed Daniel, but Daniel told him the truth. And God moved upon the king's heart, and he humbles himself. So as Daniel said, this is for the future. This is taking us to the end of time. And so all the prophecies of the book of Daniel go from the, from the time of Daniel till the end of time. That is so key. We have to understand that. That's a principle, biblical principle, and the same with all the prophecies in Revelation. Revelation is not a chronological book. It's a book like Daniel that tells a prophecy and then goes back and then repeats the prophecy and goes back and repeats the prophecy. So we have Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 with this statue. We'll see in Daniel chapter 7, these beasts, it goes back to Daniel's day and then takes us to the end of time. And then Daniel 8 and 9, same thing from Daniel's day, to the end of time. And then Daniel 10, 11, and 12, from Daniel's day to the end of time. And then same in Revelation. We get the seven congregations from the prophet's day to the end of time. Seven trumpets from the, from the prophet's day to the end of time. Uh, seven seals from the prophet's day to the end of time. So repetition over and over and over again. Kind of like when we're in, in, in elementary school, and maybe I don't know how it works, but maybe let's say in first grade, they're teaching American history. And sort of, you know, first graders is very basic. You live in America, right? You know, okay? And this is what the map of America looks like. And there's this 
state up here out in the distance, and there's one out here in the ocean, and, uh, and that's the basic map of the United States, and maybe here's the capital, and here's the current president, right? And so then they get into third grade, and they're told, we're going to do American history. And the kids go, we already know that. We learned that in first grade, right? And they cover that same 200-plus time period, but with more details. And then fifth grade, more details. Maybe some wars, maybe some other presidents, some other, other important facts, what state they live in, what's the capital of their state, and then again, seventh grade or whatever. And so over and over and over again, we're covering the same history, the same time period, but with more details added in. And that's what the Bible does. Each chapter, layer upon layer upon layer. But not a whole different thing, right? If they show up in, in uh, ninth grade and they're told this is American history and they start talking about China or Russia or Australia or something like that, they go, no, 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 that doesn't fit you know, the time frame. Or they start talking about uh, the year 1000. No, 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 that doesn't fit the, the time frame we learned in, in first grade. We're going to talk American history. You know, this is where it fits. This is the geographic where, where it is. It's the same thing here. So if anyone tries to interpret going off of this tangent, off of this foundation, they're off on a tangent. Everything builds on Daniel chapter 2. Very simple chapter, very simple to understand, basic harmony and interpretation of it across the board for the most part. But it's where the other parts where people go off on tangents. Just keep with this basic outline and everything will be all right. Just stay within the framework. So Daniel chapter 2 goes from Daniel's day, 606, give or take, uh, BCE, all the way to the end of time. So let's take a look at this prophecy. He said, you are this head of gold. Right? So Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, is represented in that statue, and that head of gold represents Babylon. And that is a very fit description. In Babylon, for example, the temple of Marduk that they built contained 18 tons of gold. Eight and a half tons in the altar and the throne room alone. That's a lot of gold, right? I wouldn't mind just a little chunk of that. That's a lot of gold going into the temple. And then in, well, Daniel, so Daniel chapter 2, the, the king has this dream, head of gold and silver and brass and so on, and that each kingdom is going to be replaced, each metal is going to be replaced with the next one, representing each kingdom being replaced by the next kingdom. And the king, he humbled himself and said, your God is the God who's able to interpret it, showed you the dream and the interpretation. But then he gets to thinking about it a little bit. And we get to Daniel chapter 3, and we cover that. If you missed it, it's on shalomadventure.com, and, and you can go and review it there or read it in the Bible. He gets to thinking about it, and he goes, you know, I don't care for that interpretation. I don't like that the head of gold is us, and it gets replaced with some silver. So he goes and builds a statue, and the statue is all of gold. In other words, my kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. That gold kingdom, the Nebuchadnezzar kingdom, the, the kingdom of Babylon is going to land all the way. It's going to continue forever. From head to toe, it's all gold. It's all Babylon. In contrast to the vision, in contrast to the dream, in contrast to the interpretation. But the fact that he's able to build this statue... All of gold. 90 feet of gold. I mean, give me a toenail, right? I mean, 90 feet of gold is pretty impressive. On top of the Temple of Marduk, it probably was already built at this time. So he had a lot of gold. It was a very rich kingdom. And so God's description of describing him as the head of gold fits perfectly. And all of the descriptions in this prophecy fit the players that it describes. And it's easy for us to look back at that now. But it's pretty amazing that God showed it to Daniel 
moving forward. And so, again, in contrast to the statue with many different medals, four different medals, five different segments to the statue, he makes one of solid gold. So Babylon, here's represented there in that golden uh, middle section there of, of what it looked like. And another principle in the Bible, these prophecies in Daniel and in Revelation are not about the entire world. They're really about God's interaction here on earth, where God is primarily at work, where God is interacting with humans the most, where humans are most receptive to him, where his people are, where his word is being printed and distributed and being read. That's where the Bible is primarily focusing. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love people in the North Pole or Antarctic or some, you know, wherever else in the world, but the Bible prophecies stay within that, again, the second principle, that stay within that framework. So, Babylon comes over and comes over the Fertile Crescent, over the north, and comes and attacks Israel and Judea, and so he's in the Bible prophecy, because again, he's greatly impacting the Word of God and the people of God. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So the silver represented in the statue, and silver even today is, is known as an inferior metal compared to gold, right? If you were in the Olympics, you'd rather have a gold medal than a silver medal, right? Uh, first place over a second place, right? So, or in stocks, you'd rather have gold stocks than, than silver stocks. Uh, and so, at least if you already owed them, owned them, right? They'd be worth more. Uh, and so gold is still worth more. And so similar here, a next kingdom is going to come, not as rich as Babylon, but it's going to come and it's going to replace the Babylon kingdom. And we read about this in Daniel chapter 5. And again, if you missed that, you can see it on Shalom Adventure or read it in the Bible. Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, is having a party inside and feasting while the Medo-Persian army is outside surrounding the city of Babylon, laying siege to the city. So you can imagine that. Here you got an army fully surrounding your city. You can't go in, you can't go out, nothing can come in, nothing can go out, and yet you're inside having a party. We read about sieges in the Bible and people are eating bird dung and donkey heads and babies, and here they're partying inside because they got the river Euphrates running right through it. They got the hanging gardens of Babylon, which is known as one of the eight wonders of the world, ancient world, and so they got lots of food inside. They say that they were throwing food at the uh, Medo-Persian army outside, just taunting them. They had plenty inside to last them a long time. They weren't worried. And so they're feasting inside. The king and his nobles are having a party. When a hand writes, a hand comes and writes upon the wall above the menorah. And no one can interpret it. And the king gets so scared, he poops his pants and loses his loins of his knee, his waist get loosed, and uh, his knees are knocking. And he's terrified, and Daniel comes in and interprets the dream for him and says, again, very faithful, gives honor and glory to God, and tells him the truth. Your kingdom has been weighed in the, found in the, weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be turned over to the Medes and the Persians. And that's the next kingdom we see coming on the scene. Now, as we described that in, as we did chapter 5, we left out a segment of of uh, how that takes place, a little bit more about that we'll go into right now. This history is recorded. Okay, so there again, so they marched in. So what Cyrus does, uh, the king of the Medo-Persians, he 
dries up the Euphrates River. He builds a, a little, diverts the water and dries it up so that his army is able to march through the dry riverbed and they march in and attack the city from inside and conquer it. Because they go and unlock the gates and let everybody else in, all the rest of the army in, and they go and they conquer it. And that's how we read it in Daniel chapter 5. I mean, there's no battle going on. They're having a party inside. And the next thing you know, boom, he reads the handwriting, and the Medo-Persians come in, kill the king, and, and it's over, overnight. And that's how it happened. They came in, they marched in, dried up the river, went in. Revelation talks about, this was a historical fact, Revelation talks to drying up the Euphrates River to dry up the symbolic Babylon in these last days. And so again, there's a parallel there. One literal, one symbolic. Symbolic river, symbolic Babylon. There's this drying up that he does. And so they're able to go in and they conquer the city by going in the dry river, so basically without a fight, and do it. And this is written in the Cyrus's cylinder. So instead of a book, they had a clay cylinder and they wrote on the clay while it was still wet, and then it dried, and instead of again opening the book and turning pages, you just turned the cylinder, and you read the cylinder, and you'd read the history of Cyrus's conquest over the city of Babylon. So we have it in Daniel chapter 5, and we have it here in the Cyrus cylinder, but we also have it in another place, which we didn't get to when we talked about Daniel in chapter 5, where it's written 150 years before it took place. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 28, Thus says the Lord that says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Now that's pretty amazing. Naming him, calling him out by name, 150 years. Do you imagine? I'm sure that Daniel showed this to Cyrus at some point and said, look, you were written in the Bible. Your name is in the Bible. God was thinking of you. God was talking about you. God knew about you before you were even born, 150 years before you were born. From eternity, God knew about you. That is pretty powerful. And not only did God know Cyrus ahead of time, God knew you before you were born. God had his plan for you. God has his eyes on you. Before you were ever created, before he even created Adam and Eve, God was thinking of you. God loves you. He calls him my shepherd. My shepherd, who will take care of my sheep. Here, this pagan king, my shepherd, who's going to do all my pleasure, who's going to perform what I ask him to do even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundations shall be laid. And Cyrus does this. Maybe because of the prodding of Daniel and because of the prophecy. And so, well, <laughs> Isaiah said this. God told Isaiah to write this 150 years ago that I was going to be his shepherd and that I was to let you go back and build Jerusalem and lay its foundation. Maybe that's what I should do. And that is what he does. But there is a reason of why he might believe that this is what he should do because Isaiah already said what he did do in, chapter, in verse 47. 
that says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. How did Cyrus and the Persians get into Babylon? They dried up the Euphrates River and marched in through the dry riverbed. And that's exactly what Isaiah says. They are going to say, dry, rivers be dry, dry, to the deep be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And that's how he conquered. But there's more. It continues in chapter 45, the next verse, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him. So he calls Cyrus, twice he mentions Cyrus by name, and he says he's going to subdue nations. And he does. He subdues nations, Babylon and other nations, and dries up the riverbed to overcome Babylon, and calls him not only my shepherd, but his anointed, his Moshiach, his Messiah. And so Cyrus representing the Messiah, Cyrus who comes from the east and conquers Babylon and sets God's people free so that we can go back to Israel to the promised land and build and lay the foundations of Jerusalem. So also in Revelation, the Messiah comes as lightning comes from the east and shineth on to the west. The Messiah will come from the east and dry up Babylon, destroy Babylon, and overcome Babylon, and take his people to the mansions that he's preparing for him, to the new Jerusalem, which will eventually God will bring down to this earth and set up his everlasting kingdom. So Cyrus, God is calling Cyrus a prefiguration of the Messiah for a heathen king. That is pretty amazing. Mentioning him twice and saying he's going to do these things. And will loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. So he dries up the river, he goes in, the gates are not shut, he's able to just go right in with his army, they open the gates from the inside, and he's just able to flood in without hardly a battle at all. Exactly as prophesied 150 years in advance. If God knew 150 years in advance for Cyrus, and for Babylon, and for Daniel, God knows what you need for tomorrow. Whatever you're worrying about today, whatever's on your heart right now, God already knows the tomorrows in our lives. And God cares. And God is concerned. And God has it laid out for us. And we just walk through it with him. Hold his hand. Let him guide and direct us in all of his paths. So back to the book of Daniel. So the second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, reigning over again the Persian area, Medo-Persian area, as well as all of what was Babylon, as well as conquering some other areas as well. So again, still reigning over Israel, even going down further into Egypt. And so it conquers more. Conquers Babylon, actually three nations it conquers. And so it again is in Bible prophecy because again it intricately intertwines with God's people. So just as Babylon had the book of Daniel in it and the destruction of Jerusalem, so also the Medo-Persians play a part. And the Bible has a story that took place during the time of the Medo-Persians, the book of Esther. 
and Queen Esther and Haman, all that had to do with the time during the Persian Empire. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole entire earth. And so the next kingdom in, histor in history that affects God's people and conquers the Medo-Persians is the Greek kingdom, kingdom of Greece, the thighs of, of bronze, the waist of bronze. And so again, we see that, even more territory. The territory keeps on expanding and starting from Greece and this time going east and conquering all the Medo-Persians, what the Medo-Persians uh, Medo had. And so the next kingdom in line. And they used a lot of brass for their military armor. And the leader of the Greek kingdom, who was the first commander reading over to do much of the conquering, know your history? Alexander, right? Alexander of the Greeks goes and conquers mightily. And that kingdom lasts for a time. And during that time is when we have the the Maccabees, the Hanukkah story, takes place during the time of the Greek rulership over God's people and over Israel. And Hanukkah mentioned in the book of John. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 14, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. So we had a rich kingdom of gold. We had another kingdom that wasn't as rich. We had another kingdom that used military, used bronze. Now we have a kingdom that is so strong, it's strong like iron, represented by the legs of the statue. And the iron kingdom is the Roman kingdom. They used a lot of iron in its military might, and it went like iron, crushing things, destroying nations powerfully, just totally blotting them out, and ruling and changing everything dominating in a very powerful, um, heavy-handed way, like iron going forth, the legs crushing and ruling over. And, and so we have them mentioned in the Bible as well, ruling over the area of Israel. We have the legs of iron. So now the entire Mediterranean Sea covered by this kingdom. So from Rome spreading uh, both east and west, conquering all of what was Greece, the Greek kingdom and more. And so having a huge, huge territory and huge dominion like the legs of iron represented in the statue. And we have the Bible stories of the birth of Messiah and the death of Messiah, actually all the Gospels and, and the book of Acts and uh, the letters all taking place during this iron kingdom of Rome. And so again, very clearly depicting in the dream, going over the outline taking us step-by-step step through history. So those are the four medals. There are four medals in the statue, but there are f six segments to the prophecy. Four medals, six segments. And so we move to the next segment. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. This is very important, this is very significant. The iron from the legs continues down into the feet and toes. So he could have used another metal, right? He could have said it goes from gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then aluminum and clay. You know, but it doesn't say aluminum and clay, it says iron, it continues with the iron. The iron, the Roman influence will continue all the way down to the toenails, all the way down to the end, Rome continues its influence. And it amazes me today, I mean, still in school today, they teach kids Roman numerals. 
Why do they need their Roman numerals? I mean, Rome hasn't been around for over 1,500 years, and, but yet Rome still has its influence and impact on the world today. That, again, is very, very significant. Otherwise, we get further into the prophecies, go off on some other tangent. No, Daniel 2 is the blueprint. It is the foundation. It lays the groundwork. Everything builds upon this. Nowhere else, no other tangent, build straight up on this foundation. So, as it's iron and clay mixed together, so this will be a divided kingdom. Not a solid kingdom of gold or silver or brass or iron, but a divided kingdom, iron and clay mixed together. And it specifically mentioned the toes. You know, when it mentioned the, the arms, it didn't mention the fingers. It mentioned, but here it specifically mentions the toes. And how many toes are on a statue? Well, statue's ten toes, right. Ten toes, that's significant. We're going to see that in Daniel chapter 7, a parallel with that. So the people will be a mixture and will not remain together. Right? So from the Rome kingdom, it's never going to remain together ever again. United, United, United kingdoms, dominating over this whole entire territory. But then we come to this time period and will not remain together. And those other ones lasted a few hundred years. Rome lasts for many hundred years. This next one is like 1,600 years time period. Any more than iron, they will not cleave together any more than iron mixes with clay. Right? Like water and oil, doesn't mix. Right? You can stir that bowl water and oil for all you want. Put it in a blender all you want, shut up the blender, and it still separates oil and water. And same with iron and clay. You can bake it, you can stir it, you can freeze it, whatever you want. That iron and clay is not going to mix together. You're going to have iron, you're going to have clay. Never blending together. And so we have Rome divides up. Rome divides up into what we have today as Europe. The divided nations of Europe represented by the clay and iron, but Rome still having an important part to play in it. So, Rome divides up the areas around the Mediterranean Sea, divide into many different branches. And so here we have the ten nations that it divided up into. How many toes were in the statue? Ten. ten. It divided into ten nations. And all the other nations, we see a military conquest. Rome does not have a military conquest overtake it overnight like Medo-Persians over Babylon. But it's a fall, right? There's even a book, right? The... The, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, right? It basically crumbles from within, the corruption inside, and slowly, year by year, it just gets weaker and weaker and parts breaking off. And so it's not a specific one date, but it begins to fall and continues to fall. In that fall, in these nations, here they are listed, first to five, and three of them end up becoming extinct, which becomes significant again when we get into Daniel chapter 7. And the English matching what they are today from the original nations of the ten breakup of Rome. So these kingdoms will be partly strong and partly fragile. Right? Rome is strong, clay or iron is strong, uh, clay is fragile, and so you have this mixture going on, and so these nations 
Some of them are stronger than others. Some are strong at one point and become weak, and others weak at one point become strong, but never anyone totally dominating over the other and never mixing and staying together and holding together. So you got this mixed batch there. And again, you have iron and clay, and it's interesting that it's iron and clay and not iron and aluminum or iron and magnesium or, you know, some other thing. Right? But they choose this clay, where all the rest are metals, and now we have this clay element brought in, this earthly human element mixing there with the uh, iron. And we see all the metals representing basically military conquest and the military might or, or the financial riches of the kingdom. But now here we have this clay mixing with this iron, keeping it weak and making it weak and not being able to hold together. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. And so there's this mingling going on, and the mingling of the seed, the mingling of the seed of men will take place. That's a very specific prophetic mention, especially since it's mentioned by Daniel about 2,000 years before this, or about 1,000 years before this kingdom, this time period even begins. They're going to mix the seed of men. Those are specific words. Especially as we understand what the Bible, when the Bible talking about a seed, and seed of men, what it's referring to. And they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So there's going to be an attempt of mixing the seed of men together, but it will not adhere together. And so there's this nation, now there's many more nations, have been divided up into many other nations, but all these nations, small nations, a lot of them, not able to come together. But a mingling of the seed, but still not able to come together. There's a castle in Fredericksburg, Denmark, that on site it has this huge mural. Couldn't even picture it here. Here's one aspect of it, here's another aspect of it, and there's much more. Not able to get into even just the two frames. But if you notice all this, it's a family tree. Right, so you see the branches going off and all branching all over the place and branching this way and that way. And, and you'll notice with each one of these people, they have their, their crest, right? Or their, their family, their line, their, their, uh, their national symbol or, or flag, right? Whatever you call those things. What? Coat of arms. Coat of arms. That's good. Coat of arms. Representing their nation. And so there were alliances taking place. So when king would talk to another king and he says, hey, I'll tell you what, uh, let's have my son and your daughter get married together and we'll have an alliance together and we'll join forces together and we'll unite together. And so they made these pacts and said, all these kind of pacts. And so you see all these different coats of arms, all of them all trying to come together to try and make some unity together and build it together and blend it together. And so this mingling of the seed of men was taking place. These royalty coming together, and these princes and princesses marrying together. But it still didn't work. They still never fully came together as a united kingdom. They had fights, they battled, they had divorces, whatever. It never fully came together. It never meshed. It never became one nation again. Not only did they try with the mingling of seed of men, but they also tried military might. Various different people rose up 
Charlemagne, Charles V, Louis XIV, Napoleon, Kaiser William, Hitler, all tried to militarily conquer all of Europe. But they were not able to do so. Each one failed, each one was defeated eventually, for a short period of time, but not even a long period of time. Babylon had to, you know, a couple hundred years, 300 years, some more, Rome was several hundred years, but this didn't even last hardly at all. Attempt after attempt after attempt for 1,600 years, all these different attempts, marriages, intermarriages, wars, conquests, and no one able to pull it together. Why? Was Napoleon not as great a conqueror as Alexander the Great? Was Hitler not as cruel as the Roman rulers? Why weren't these guys able to pull it together? Why weren't they able to conquer like these other able kingdoms were able to conquer and rule over it all? They didn't have enough money, they didn't have enough military might, they didn't have enough genius. Why couldn't they do it? Because God said they would not be able to do it. That's the reason. That's the only reason. And if God says you can't do something, you can't do something. And if God says you can do something, you can do something. If God says this is what's going to be, this is what's going to be. God's word is truth. God's word is sure. And so for 1,600 years, they can try and defy God, and they're not going to be able to defy God. So your homeowners association, or your neighbor, or your state, or some judge, or some, your boss, or someone's, some spouse, someone's going to say, you can't do something. When God says you can do something, and you need to do something, and you have to do something. And we don't have to listen to them. We don't have to fear what they have to say. And they may say, you're, you're not going to be able to do something, but God says we can, then we're going to. God's word is truth. God's word is sure. And that's why they've never been able to come together. Right? So Rome divided up into, and where did the Bible go, right? When, when, when Babylon, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by Rome, and then the uprising in 135, the Bar Kokhba revolt, and was destroyed again and really crushed under, by Rome and dispersed. Where were we dispersed to? Where does the book of Acts take place? Where, where does most of it take place? Where does Paul take the gospel primarily? Greece. To Greece. That's right. Greece and Corinth. Right? And, and Philippi. Mostly what is today of Europe. Goes to Rome. Goes to Italy. Right? And so takes it. That's where the Bible goes. Now, yes, Philip went to India, and there were some others, you know, went some other places, but primarily where the gospel began to start to take root for the most part, and the Bible began to be, where was the Bible first uh, printed? In what nation, right? In Germany, right, in Europe, right. Yeah, and so that's where the Bible prophecy then goes. And so the Bible prophecies here are following where God's people go, where the Bible goes, where the word of God is being taught primarily. Right? Not to atheistic Russia, not to atheistic North Korea or China. Big nations, powerful nations, lasted a long time. Not mentioned in the Bible prophecy. Why? Because that's not where the Bible interest is. That's not what God's focus is. God's focus is on his word and his people and where his words moving, where they're open and receptive to him. Right? And so that's where this prophecy then goes. Now again, Daniel 2 is basic, just a basic outline, and we'll see in Revelation, and we'll get into much more and much deeper. If you want to see that, you can go to jewishheritage.net and get the Surviving and Thriving series, or 
We did a whole Revelation study. But where's the next place? Where does the Bible next go? After Europe, when Europe starts to die down, where does the Bible go next? Historically, looking back, where'd it go? Where? America. America, exactly, to America, right. And that's where Bible prophecy then goes. And now Israel has been restored in the last uh, over 70 years, right? And so then it's mentioned in the Bible again. It comes back into the Bible prophecy again. And so as we follow the Bible, we follow the scriptures, we follow these Bible principles, then we're able to stay on track and not get off on all kinds of wrong tangents. Again, Rome is there to the very end, the iron is right there to the very end, and God tracking with where his people are, where the Bible is being taught, and where the Bible is being received. So all these attempts and more unable to defeat it, even now today, you got the European Union trying to bring it all together. And even right now, this very weekend, right? And I couldn't plan this schedule far enough in advance to come up with Daniel chapter 2, the very weekend, when they're having a vote and voting their leaders all over again. And voting, the, the whole nation is voting to jump out of it, right? And then it sounds like the whole thing is going to be upturned on its head, right? The previous rulers are now looking like they're going to be out and new rulers are coming in. So the whole thing is changing very rapidly and have never been able to come together. This European Union is not united. Right? They haven't even come up with a united currency for the most part, but not totally. There's a lot of disunity among the European Union. It's not one nation. It's not been able to fully come together and it will never be able to fully come together. Why? Because God said so. Just as iron does not mix with clay, it will not cleave together. They can try, they can make their alliances, they can make their promises to each other, and it's not going to happen. So, again, they will not cleave together. So that's the basic outline of the four metals and the five kingdoms, the five stages, and then there's a sixth stage. But this is, again, the blueprint from Daniel's day in Babylon to the end of time. So Babylon was the head of gold, silver, Medo-Persia, Greece, the bronze, iron, Rome, divided Europe with Rome, Roman uh, iron and clay down to the very bottom. That, again, is the outline, and that's the same outline for all the prophecies of Daniel all the prophecies of Revelation. Again, Revelation is not one prophecy, it's several prophecies, just repeating over and over again, laying, laying, laying that foundation over and over again, building, 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 building. Right, you got the concrete foundation, and you got some structure, concrete walls, and you got some wood framing, and then you got some sheetrock put up, and you got a roof, right? Everything building, 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 adding more and more details going into it. That's how Daniel and Revelation goes, until we get the full picture, the full house all together. But there's a sixth stage that comes in. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Right? God's eternal kingdom. So that's where we are. It goes right down to divided Europe, and then the end comes. And that's where we're still at. Europe is still divided. We're right down to the very toenails of the statue. We're down to the very end. Rome is still playing an influence, and then comes the stone cut out of a mountain without hands. God's doing, God's action, God's power. And the stone comes and smashes the statue and builds this mighty kingdom, builds this mighty mountain, and it will never be destroyed. 
nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Right? So our lives might have ups and downs. Our lives might go through things. Our might have gold for a while and it may end up in silver for a while and might lose it all in the stock market or something. And we might have you know, our house and it might burn down. We might have things happen to us and over and over again and transitions in our life. But God's kingdom will never change. God's truth is eternal truth. When God creates the new heavens and new earth and destroys this earth, don't hold on to this earth, all of it's going to pass away anyway. Our cars are going to melt with fervent heat. All the blacktop and all the garbage is all going to dissolve away. And God is going to create his eternal kingdom, his new heavens and new earth. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. For eternity we will dwell with the Lord. No more problems, no more crying, no more sadness. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And he has our name written on a door in the mansion he's preparing for us, in the new Jerusalem, where he's preparing it, where he's going to come and take us to be where he is before he brings that new Jerusalem here and establishes his everlasting kingdom after he destroys and totally destroys all the kingdoms of this world. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. God is truth. His word is truth. He is trustworthy. We can put our rest in him. We can put our trust in him. We can put our weight upon him. We can put our faith in him. Believe his word. Believe his prophets. And we will be established. We will be governed by the word of God. Consistent and true. He is faithful. As he prophesied, it came to pass. As he mentioned Cyrus, he came on the scene when needed. As he told Babylon this was going to be, told Nebuchadnezzar this was going to be the outline, that is the outline. God knew all these kingdoms in direct sequence, knowing their number and knowing all these details about them. And again, we've just scratched the surface on details. Seven and nine, nine and all going to give us more and more details. God knew all the details in Daniel's day and long before that, of everything that was going to happen from Daniel's day to the end of time. For 2,600 years, in one simple chapter, he outlines all the history that is important to God and God's people. He's in control. He knows all things. And he knows all about you, all about your troubles, all about your cares, all about your worries, all about your fears, all that gives you joy and hope and thankfulness and praise. He knows all our needs and he cares for us. That's why he lays this out. He didn't lay this out just to impress Daniel, just to impress the king, just to impress us. He laid it out so we can have an assurance. He knows what he's doing. He is God. He is the true God. He is the only God. He knows all things. We can rely on him. We can rely on his word. And if he knew enough to tell Daniel and even give Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and even talk to Cyrus. 
these pagan heathens, then he cares about us. And he knows what he was writing from Genesis all the way through the Torah, all the way through the scriptures of what is best for us. He knows the plans that he has for you. Plans to prosper you. Not to hurt you, but to give you an expected end. And that's really what it's all about. God's plan in our lives. Trusting in him and letting him unfold it day by day, walking with him. We can try and fight it. We can say like King Nebuchadnezzar, no, I'm going to make it all gold. I'm going to do it my way. And God's way is still eventually going to come to pass. We can rebel and break away like Napoleon and Hitler and Kaiser William and all these others. We can try our own way. We can mingle the seed of men like Abraham and, and his concubine. We can try our own way. And God's still going to bring to pass what God said he's going to bring to pass, with us or without us. Trust in him. Go along for the ride with him. Have faith in him. Walk in his light. He's coming again, like of Cyrus. He's going to come on the clouds from the east, and every eye shall see him, and the dead in Messiah will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. And he'll take us to the mansions that he's preparing for us in the new Jerusalem in heaven. He'll destroy the kingdoms of this earth and crush them down like the Stone crushing the statue, hitting it at the feet, and crushing it all the way down. And then eventually after that, some time after that, will bring us back and establish his new kingdom, his new earth, and his new heavens, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's where we want to be. We want to trust in him. We want to walk with him. We want to spend eternity with him. So as we prepare to pray together, there's some area in your life, some area you've been worrying, some area you've been, some care, some fear for your future. Maybe you're fearing for your health. Maybe you're concerned about, maybe you got some notice about your rent or your mortgage or your foreclosure or, or your job or your retirement. And you're concerned for your future. And you want to lay your future in God's hand, knowing he knows the future he has for you. And so if that applies to you, in a moment when we pray, surrender your future to God's good hand and the plans that he has for you. Secondly, if you've been trying to bucket, if you've been trying to resist God's will, you've been fighting against him, there's some area in your life, there's some sin in your life, some way, shape, or form, you're trying to do it your way instead of God's way trying to build up your own kingdom, trying to make your life, trying to live forever by not dying instead of by trusting in him. You want to surrender to him. Trying to make your legacy higher on this earth instead of planting up in heaven, storing up in heaven with him. In a moment when we pray, you want to surrender whatever area of your life, any sin in your life, you want to surrender that to him. And give that over to him, let him cleanse it, let there be nothing to stop you from entering into God's eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed.
you're relying on the politics of this world or the things of this world or the metals of this world, the finances of this world, the stocks of this world. They're all going to change. Things are going to change. But God does not change. Rely in him. So if that applies to you, in a moment when we pray, you can give that over to him. Thirdly, if God is calling you like Daniel to speak boldly even to the king, speak boldly and let him give honor and glory to the Lord. God's been working, God's been revealing things, God's been teaching you, God's been working in your life, and you need to give him honor and glory and praise and let others around you know there is a God in heaven who knows all things. God's calling you to tell somebody, to tell us, uh, Nebuchadnezzar to tell Osiris to let it be known there is a God and he's got a plan for them as well. God's calling you to share this truth with others, God's word with others. In a moment when we pray, ask God to move before you, to move upon their hearts and minds, to soften them, and to prepare the way, and to prepare you to share with them, and to live rightly with them. And just as Daniel was prepared to speak truth in Daniel 2 because he made the right choice in Daniel 1, You need to make some right choices with the Lord step by step and to follow him in all ways. And I invite you as we pray to let God have every aspect of your life. Victory in all areas to follow him and him alone. If any of those areas or maybe God's speaking to your heart about something else, then as we pray, let God do his work in and through you. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, thank you so much for It's amazing prophecy, and it's just really the beginning of the specifically prophetic chapters of Daniel and Revelation. Lord, thank you that you know all things and you know us. Thank you for laying it out, and thank you for bringing it to pass. And Lord, we want to walk in your ways, and we want to walk in your path, and we want to walk on your foundation, and stand upon you, and stand upon your word, and trust in you. Cleanse us through the sacrifice of Messiah, death and resurrection, live in us and create in us new hearts. Thank you, Lord, and fulfill your will and your plan for each of our lives individually and corporately. Bring us together and unify us together in you. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.